gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And uh, we have Valerie Hobbs with us, and we're going to talk to her about her kind of newer book, uh, An Introduction to Religious Language. Valerie, welcome, and thanks for joining us. She's joining us from the UK, so glad we could have her on. I think uh, you were on a little while ago with the Plumbline podcast. I think that was a few months ago, right? Yes, yes. Um Kat Whiffin is especially a good friend of mine, and I know they were on your podcast, so that's another connection we have. We've had them on, and we've been on theirs. In your book, why you wrote this book, but maybe you could share with the listeners kind of why why you wrote this book. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, maybe a little bit of background about me. Um, I'm, I'm a dual American British citizen. I've lived and worked in England since 2004, and um, I was born in Alaska, um, but raised mostly in Georgia. And I've attended a wide variety of churches since I was a kid, um, from Charismatic to Baptist. Um, I went to Salvation Army for a while, but for most of my childhood, I attended a Presbyterian church in Atlanta, Georgia. And I say Presbyterian in name only, um, in a micro-reformed denomination. So I grew up mostly in the Reformed Church. I went to Covenant College for my undergrad, and I was a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church up until I moved to England. And for the last 17 years, um, I was a member of an independent Reformed Church here. So... I'm one of those academics that likes to work on all kinds of different projects. Uh, some academics like to specialize and narrow their interests fairly quickly. 
I'm not like that. So rather than specializing on one particular context or aspect of language, um, I've worked on a pretty diverse range of projects. Um, but mostly for the entirety of my career, I've all of my projects have involved looking at the ways that seemingly inclusive institutions and organizations use language and other forms of behavior to exclude and marginalize its members, especially vulnerable people. So all of my projects as a linguist have arisen out of this um, meaningfulness of language use in real world problems. And eventually this led me to religious language. Um, I mean, I'm a Christian, so it's, it's, it's an aspect of language that's very important to me. But again, I started working on religious language specifically because of a problem. And that problem was the ways that a seemingly inclusive institution, in this case, a Christian church denomination in the United States, was harming and even excluding vulnerable people. So the specific case I was asked to work on first was actually how I ended up meeting you, Rachel. Um, a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church asked me to attend, to witness, to document the last stage of a church trial. This was in the Presbytery of the Southeast. So the Presbytery had filed charges against one of its ministers because of his refusal to require his disabled wife to attend church. So I wrote about that. I published some research examining documents connected to this trial. But eventually I realized I needed to pan out a bit and try to understand how religious language works more broadly so I'd have a kind of framework within which to work. So I wrote my book um, after a number of years of, of trying to make sense of um, language use in religious communities. And there was really no book that put forward a clear explanation of what religious language is, what it does for us, who uses it, where can we find it? So I thought, okay, why not me? So um, that's how my book came about. Yeah, I, I remember meeting you during that time. Um, it's, uh, it's funny how you're right that there, you've done, taken a lot of different approaches. I've read many of your articles and, and work in, in different, it's all interesting and all clearly related to your linguistics background, but very diverse uh, in, in the topics that you cover. Um, really enjoyed your book. Uh, it was it was an interesting read, even as you know, non-academic, and this is not my field. It was uh, quite interesting to see how and where religious language is used. And so, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what exactly is religious language, and you know, what what are some of the contexts that we could expect to find it? Okay, sure. Yeah, but it's really nice to get that feedback. Um, I, I really wanted my book to be accessible and I know, you know, it's, it is still it's not something you can just pick up and, re and thumb through and read quickly. It does require engagement, but um, I, I hoped that it would be useful to a wide variety of, of readers. Um, so this question, what is religious language? Um, when most people think about religious language, and this is when I ask people, you know, what, what do they consider to be religious language? 
they tend to think about people who call themselves religious. So people who affiliate with organized religion and the kind of language that they use in the context of, of performing their religion. So, and that's how many scholars have defined it. So a lot of the work, the existing work on religious language involves looking at language used within these confines of organized religion. So we have scholarship on types of interactions like sermons, sacred texts themselves, like the Bible, the Quran, um, the ways that people of faith talk about their beliefs or how they try to convert other people. We have work on stories of conversion. And all these are examples of religious language. Uh, one of, one of uh, my colleagues who's also working in this field calls this talk about faith. And there's no doubt this is, this is religious language. But the problem I ran into as I was teaching and researching religious language was that I found that religious language is not just something that people who call themselves religious use. It appears everywhere. Not just in organized religion, but pretty much every sphere. And I, I give my students a challenge every year, you know, try to, you know, make a case for me that someone is using religious language in a really unexpected place. And they, they always surprise me. That's, that's fun. Um, now, I'm still talking at this point about religious language that we might easily identify as religious. So, I call this explicit religious language. That's language that is more commonly used in and derived from institutionalized, organized religion. So if, you know, people talk about Christianese, this is an example of this. So language like God, prayer, salvation, redemption, conversion, evil, divine, this is language that is explicitly religious. We identify, you know, we might use it in all kinds of contexts, but we, we would say, yeah, that's come from organized religion. And we can find that in all kinds of places, of course, within organized religion, but in advertising, in sport, politics, the law, healthcare, in our everyday lives. So I needed to come up with a definition of religious language that captures this diversity of use. So here's one way of defining it from my book. So I say religious language is a visible and significant means by which we construct and reconstruct our beliefs about the world and our place in it. By it, we both bless and curse. By it, we manipulate and are manipulated. Religious language is one means, it's one way that we mark out what we humans hold sacred in the world. So that means what we consider special, what is set apart. So that can be what we, what we love, what we revere, but also what we hate. And this means that religious language is perhaps the most powerful language we can possibly use. And that means it's incredibly important for us to understand. You know, it's interesting you you talking about how you can find religious language in different spheres. And uh, this journalist that I follow that's traveled all around the world, and this is like this is a man that really has not been in any religious circles, but he grew up um, in the United States. And he's he said, I don't know exactly how he happened upon this, but he realized that religious language is used 
in our society, especially in the United States, um, quite a lot. And he said, if you walk up to somebody in the United States and you even walk up to an atheist and say, do you know what sin is? They'll say, yeah, I know what sin is. He said, but in China, he asked people, do you know what sin is? And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, that it's, it's, so it's interesting, even in different societies, how religious language may um, be common or maybe not common. Yeah, so that's that's a really relevant point you bring up, and one that's often talked about. I hear about I hear this a lot. This idea that people in Christian dominant societies, so communities with a history of exposure to Christianity, they recognize this word sin more readily. So then this gets taken as evidence that people who use the word sin understand the Christian concept of sin and even live by it. But I want to push back a bit on this, because first of all, every community has a concept of transgression. So Christians don't have a corner on this. Americans don't have a corner on this. The particular language for the concept of transgression, which each community has, may differ. It may be unique. Um, so research on conversion narratives have shown, for example, that when someone converts to a new religion... They already have words for good and evil, words that refer to these concepts. So one scholar working on the narratives, the, these are conversion narratives of Peruvians who've converted to Christianity. This scholar says that what matters is that it's not that suddenly these Peruvians have a new vocabulary, but that what they now consider as good and evil what is good and what is evil, is now in light of their new religion, in light of what the God of the Bible says. So what has shifted is what is classified as transgression, not the existence of transgression. So yeah, Americans have the word sin in their vocabulary. But is America a Christian nation because it more readily recognizes and uses the language of Christianity? I think not. This is why we need to take great care around insisting that everyone use Christianese, everyone use our particular terminology for transgression. What matters to be a Christian is that you, you understand the gospel and you, you understand the concept of um, salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. What counts as religious vocabulary and what steps can we take to identify these features and why might it be helpful for us to recognize this? Okay. So um, I've talked a little bit mostly about explicit religious language. So again, that's language that is, it tends to be more frequent in organized religion and we recognize it as religious language. And we can be more specific than that, though. I mean, religious language is a big domain. So we can, talk, we can be more specific and talk about the particular linguistic or discourse features involved in doing religion, in making sacred the world. So I talk about some of these in my book over the various chapters. So, um, for example, metaphor is common um, and other figurative language. Another one is intertextuality. So that, that's a a really important one. That's the way that we weave sacred authority into other texts. So the way we appeal to sacred authority to make, make it seem like our beliefs are legit. Uh, so that could be like quoting the Bible 
referring to religious leader that has particular authority. We're, we're taking on that sacred authority for ourselves. And then another feature, probably one of the most common ones, is this religious vocabulary. So these are words and phrases that perform a religious function. So um, again, in my book, I provide, I go through this um, information about how to identify what is religious vocabulary. And there have been some studies done on some of the vocabulary that tends to be more common in organized religion. There are word lists you can access that will help you identify it. Um, but so far, I've, I, you know, this is all kind of pick a really obvious one, the word biblical. This word appears, as you would expect, much more frequently within Christianity, though it's commonly used in other places like certain academic disciplines. But let's consider the word biblical within Christianity. So all we Christians want to be biblical, right? We, we care about what is biblical and what is not biblical because we take the Bible seriously. It's our most sacred text. We use the word biblical or unbiblical to describe the legitimacy or illegitimacy of our beliefs. So what's right and wrong? What are good ways? What are bad ways of behaving? All sorts of things. This is powerful labeling. And that power can be used for good. So to take what I consider um, maybe what tends to be a more harmless example, I think about the phrase um, biblical narrative. So we want to understand God's story of himself, his salvation of his people. So we use this language, biblical narrative, to talk about sections of that story, to refer to it. We want to follow it. We want to stay close to it. We want to make sense of it. We want to keep it at the forefront of our minds. But the word biblical often gets exploited because, as we know, we humans are still keen to build Babel. We want to construct. We want to find our way to heaven. We want to build heaven on earth. So how can we get people to participate in our mission? We attach sacred meaning to that mission. So the word biblical really works well for that. You know, it's, it's attached to the sacred text. It, it has all these positive associations. So it gets used in all kinds of places. So when, when Christians with recognized authority call something biblical, and, you know, I'm sure the sure listeners are thinking of their own examples here, but my mind immediately goes to biblical manhood and womanhood, biblical counseling, biblical patriarchy. So these kind of labels get repeated over and over and over by people in, a, in positions of authority. And the sacred meaning of biblical gets attached to that concept of manhood, of counseling, of womanhood, whatever. And that becomes very difficult to question or detach. So this mission has now been branded as biblical. So you aren't just questioning, if you question that, if you say, wait, hold on a second, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't like this concept of biblical counseling or biblical womanhood, but you aren't just questioning the concept of, of womanhood or counseling. You aren't just even questioning the authority figures who designed that brand. Now you're questioning the Bible and you're questioning God. You're questioning the most sacred, the core of Christianity. So that, that is, I mean, religious language is, is so powerful. And we think, you know, 
once you unpack it, you think, okay, that's really simple. But these things get embedded very deeply into our minds and into our behavior. And it's, it's very difficult then to push ourselves to separate in our minds the concept, which is human-made, from the sacred branding. And especially when powerful authority figures have a vested interest in protecting that brand. Um, and, and they push back and say, oh, she doesn't, you know, they don't want to be biblical. So now you're, you know, there's a, there's a power play. Um, so religious language, I mean, it's, it's incredibly useful. It has wonderful, um, it can do wonderful things, but on the flip side, it absolutely can devastate um, and destroy. And, and this is why we have to pay attention to this. It, it is maybe the most important language to um, make sense of, to investigate, to be critically aware of. You know, it's very interesting that you, you bring up about, um, especially the use of biblical and biblical manhood, womanhood, biblical counseling. Um, we've certainly seen that kind of power play and that kind of questioning. You think about uh, things that you and I have written, things that uh, Amy Bird has written, um, things that we have discussed here on the podcast where we have questioned, uh, you know, neuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. We've questioned the, this description of womanhood as biblical womanhood. And you do get a lot of push. People say, oh, we'll see. Why wouldn't you be, why wouldn't you be it for this? It's biblical. Yeah. You think, yeah. well, I'm not, I'm not against the Bible. I don't think the Bible teaches this, but how do you, how to divorce that meaning from the, the teaching? So you can say, this is what they call it, but it doesn't mean it is, you know, and that's, um, I appreciate you bringing that, that up in particular. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's unfortunate just how, um, how easily susceptible we are. But I mean, it, it, I think the, the, the misuse of religious language is always going to play on our deepest hell beliefs. Mm. So I, I don't feel, I, I think, you know, I can understand when people are get concerned when someone questions something that has, has been seen as biblical because we want, you know, we, that the person who is manipulating you is exploiting something good in you. They're, they're exploring a desire for that, that you have, which is good to be more like God, to draw close to God. Um, but it, it's, um, it, yeah, as I've said, it's powerful stuff. We, we have to be careful. It's just very interesting because, you know, it, you're writing as an academic in an academic field and it could be seen as something that's, you know, well, well, this is an academic, it's esoteric, it's a discussion about ideas and things, but it's very practical and it's very um, applicable to everybody to understand how this is being used in our lives. And so we are more aware of attempts to manipulate us and not just in religious circles. We'll talk later about some of the other ways this is used, but um, we just, we all do have a, excuse me, it's reasonable for all of us to be aware of these things. It's helpful for us to know what's going on. So um, another place in the book you wrote, everyone, regardless of religious affiliation or lack thereof, participates in sacred making through language. I wondered if you could explain a little what that means. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good segue into that because um, it's, I mean, I've talked about Christians quite a bit. I'm a Christian. So I, I, I really care deeply about my community and um, my, my heart is for, um, for my own community, but you know, what I've learned studying language and religious language particularly is that this language reflects one of our most fundamental aspects of our humanity, that we were made for worship. And language is a powerful means by which we worship. We use language to, to worship. So I don't just mean go to church and go to mosque, go to synagogue. I mean, as we go about our lives, we use language to mark out what's most sacred in our lives. And every year I encourage my students to think about what is most sacred in their lives. Um, and yeah, th this, this goes beyond um, any particular world religion. It, it goes deeply into what it is to be human. So, I mean, one of the concepts I look at in my book um, is how commonly we use religious language to talk about food. And I want to use this example because it's so universal. The food is essential to life. Um, I mean, we, we also have to acknowledge that food is often used in sacred ritual. So, of course, many sacred texts, the Bible included, use the language of food as a metaphor for spiritual nourishment. So bread of life and so on. Um, so considering the, the meaningfulness, the significance of food for human survival, but also its longstanding links with religious practice. It's no wonder we, we all as humans tend to talk about food as a religion. Now, this is much less common, I've noticed, in the United Kingdom versus other countries. Uh, British people don't seem to be as passionate about food, although, you know, there, there are pockets of that. Um, but, you know, one of the I watched a recent food series on Netflix called Taco Chronicles which really exemplified what I'm talking about this in really obvious ways. So one of the chefs in the series said, this is a quote, if tacos were a religion, the taqueria would be the church and the priest would be the taquero. It's a religion no one talks about or knows what happened, but we believe it. So one of, one of the things I've wrestled with, I worked on this book is when considering religious language in more commonplace circumstances. So, you know, food or sport or healthcare. Um, I've really had to wrestle with the issue of blasphemy. Um, I mean, words can and do have multiple meanings, but when we use explicit religious language in ways that approximate worship. So, you know, we're talking about when we use religious language to talk about something like food, in ways that approach worshiping um, and where we might be worshiping what's been created instead of the creator. It's made me think more carefully about um, <laughs> my own ways of talking. And um, it's, it's raised a lot of, a lot more questions in my mind than answers. You uh, mentioned worldview. I'm going to read a little quote from your book. Our world view comp comprises all that we experience and encounter as it, and is in many ways socially, culturally, 
even supernaturally constructed. So what does worldview have to do with discussions about religious language? Okay, I'm really glad you you raised this point because the word worldview has major baggage. And um, maybe some listeners will know what baggage is. Um, one of the major problems with the concept is that we usually talk about it singular. So you hear about, for example, go to Christian context. This is theology gals after all. So you hear about a Christian worldview or the Christian worldview. And we could tie this to the word I mentioned earlier, biblical. The language here often operates as a way of branding a singular cosmology, that is a singular perspective on the world. And it has a way of discouraging critical self-reflection. And we've talked about this a bit with biblical manhood and womanhood. I think Christian worldview can operate in the same way. So um, one of my academic colleagues, race, the race scholar, Nathan Cartania, talks about how the notion of a Christian worldview serves for many to bolster their avoidance of developing historical awareness and wisdom. So one of the reasons I wanted to use worldview is to push back on that. And I'm, readers will have to determine for themselves how successful I am. But I think this wisdom that, that Partania talks about, it involves recognizing more um, humbly the tension between the already of this world and the not yet of what's to come. So recognizing that actually in this life, what we have are worldviews, plural. So we're a mess. This, you know, our, our perspectives on the world, our beliefs, these comprise all we experience and encounter. And these are in many ways, as you put in your quote from my book, socially, culturally, and yes, also supernaturally constructed, but we, we haven't arrived yet. So whether I'm successful in this or not, one of the reasons I chose the world, the word worldview in my book was because scholars of religion are using this in helpful ways to talk about how language reveals our deepest held beliefs, but also because I want to problematize the very destructive way we tend to use this term within Christianity, particularly. I wanted to show how our language reveals our complex commitments many of which we're not even aware of, which, and all this should prompt continual reformation and deep humility. No, I, I really did appreciate because I am aware of a lot of the baggage with uh, worldview and I appreciate how you used it because I do think it's important for us to think about it critically about our, how we're using worldview and what we mean when we say it and what we should mean when we say it. Um, well, that's what your book did, Rachel. I mean, that, that's what I so appreciated about your book is that it, it peeled back some of these layers um, and, you know, people are uncomfortable with that. We like to think we have the Christian worldview. We have a Christian worldview. Um, no, <laughs> I mean, <Right. laughs> no, we don't. We don't have the only way of looking at it, Christian no, and we, we, we have been informed by a lot of influences that we need to critically unpack. And that's, you know, that's your, your book really, um, I think, was, was challenging in that, in that very helpful way. 
Thank you. I like your question. Of course, you, you make the professor answer her own questions, but I like the question in your book. Is all of our language used religious in some sense, since it inherently reveals our perspective on the world? And so I'm going to turn it back on you as the professor and make you answer. <laughs> How would you answer your own question? Yeah, so th- this is a really difficult question to answer. So that, you know, if if we consider the fact that um, all of our utterances reveal our perspective, we are, when we use language, we are making commentary on the things around us, on, on what we see, what we observe, what we're interacting with. Um, we're revealing our priorities. So when we talk, we're choosing to talk about one thing, not another, choosing to identify certain people, but not other people. All of that has meaning and it, it all connects to underlying questions and answers about who we are, who has value, where did we come from? Where are we going? You know, it's if we were to draw a massive, you know, complex web of all of our of things we utter over our lives, um, I think the, the picture would would tell us something that might be surprising. So, in some ways, yes, my my answer is yes. All of our language is religious in some sense. Um, any stretch of language can be religious, especially if the context involves revealing what's most sacred to a person, to a community. And, you know, I, I think as humans, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in what people choose to talk about and the particular people they choose to talk about, who they choose to leave out. That's a question, you know, when, um, when I'm looking at a text, I'm not just looking at what's there, but what's also left out that could have been included. Um, so my study of language has revealed that if there are any boundaries between the religious or the sacred and the so-called secular, they are very fuzzy. And I don't, I don't really have a clear answer, um, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> I happily live in the gray areas. Uh, they're they're actually my happy place, and I enjoy. I actually found I enjoyed my teaching on this topic much more when I just embraced the ambiguity and said, "Okay, kids, students, they're not kids; they're young adults." But um, make a case for me that somebody is behaving religiously around something unexpected, and and I as I've said, I always am surprised. And in a, in a way that challenges me, that pushes me. Um, so I think it's, it's a question worth considering with no easy answers. I was just thinking that's my happy place. Maybe <laughs> I said that already, but I, I happily live in these gray areas. Um, I, li- I like questions that don't have an easy answer. What, one of the things you mentioned earlier in, in that answer is something that I was actually thinking about a lot. And in the different religious communities I've been in, a lot of the religious language that's emphasized has to do with what's maybe most important to them. And I, I grew up in the Evangelical Free Church, pretty, um, my circle's pretty mild. I, I don't recall ever hearing the phrase biblical manhood and womanhood mm. until I was in Reformed circles. But then I ended up at a Wesleyan Arminian Bible college and, you know, very Wesleyan entire sanctification. And so 
that was even a kind of culture shock for me because they spoke in ways that were so foreign to what I had grown up in. I mean, there were some similarities still, but they their religious language was different. Or if I was with my friends from the Assemblies of God church, they had you know specific ways that, that they would speak. And I was even thinking half my family's Jewish and uh, I have some Hasidic Jewish family, even their religious language, um, very much based on the things that are very important to them. Have you found that? I know you said that have you thought about that much? Because I know you said you kind of were in some different circles growing up. Yes. Um, so it, within, you know, the, the kind of world religion of Christianity or other world communities, you know, think of Islam. There are all kinds of sub-communities. And I mean... I can talk about this positively because community is humans are social. We, we, we need each other. And one of the ways that we mark our identity, one of the ways that we bond with each other is by using insider language. So it makes sense. And it's not necessarily a negative thing that within this huge umbrella of Christianity or Islam or Judaism, I mean, you mentioned Hasidic Jews, that's one particular um, community or subgroup within Judaism. And even within Hasidic Jews, there are, there are, you know, differences. Yeah. There's several uh, sects of Hasidic. Yeah. yeah. And each has their, you know, they'll, they'll have things in common, but they'll also have particular ways of talking that are unique there to their community. And that that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it, it's, it's, it can be a way of bonding. It's, it's a way of, um, showing affection of showing of of um, of 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 forming that identity that's so important to us as human beings. We want to belong. Um, the The problem is when, of course, the flip side when it's when it's used to exclude, and that's um, that's always the tension between. Sorry, within um, religious language it's power and potential, that tension between creating community and excluding other people. That, that kind of brings us actually right to the next question. And um, so religious language can have many uses and you point out that it can be used to mark and enforce boundaries of a community um, who is in, who is out uh, you write, we can learn a great deal about a community's sacred belief system by what constitutes a boundary violation, what are negotiable and non-negotiable. Okay. And let me just say right now, from when you guys were talking earlier, things like biblical manhood and womanhood, and we've talked before, even with Amy Bird, where some people have certain aspects of this that are non-negotiable and, you know, you don't speak about these things in the right way. You're out. You're not part of the tribe anymore. So what are some examples of how religious language is used in that way? Yeah. So this is really one of the reasons I started researching religious language. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, because of how language is used to position people um, as insiders and outsiders. And again, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to this church trial I mentioned at the beginning in the Presbyterian of the Southeast, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. 
So I witnessed religious language being explicitly used to mark someone as deviant. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing because there's some people that should be excluded. Exclusion is not necessarily bad. You know, think about someone who's violent, someone who's harming other people. But one of the phrases that came up in this trial was this phrase, manage well his home. So this was used to talk about the minister who refused to require his wife, who had significant disability and chronic illness. He refused to require her to attend church. So this language was pulled out. You know, he wasn't managing his home well. This was pulled out to use as justification for not only bringing him to trial as a minister, but also he lost his job at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And this language was used over and over and over. He didn't manage his home. He didn't manage his home well. So what does it mean to manage your home well? So to this particular community, it meant being cruel and domineering to a disabled woman. So this, this is, um, this is the stakes here. And we learn again, you know, you you use this quote that we, we, it's true. We learn a great deal about a communities and, you know, we've already talked about Christianity and how um, in other world religions where certain sub communities develop. And I always, you know, I always look to this point of, of what constitutes um, a boundary violation. So what, what transgressions, or what kind of line means that someone is, is an outsider? You know, we saw this with our friend Amy Bird. You know, she, she was cast as an outsider just for questioning the concept of biblical manhood and womanhood. That, that is powerful stuff. That, that's saying that to be a Christian, you have, to, you have to adhere to, you have to believe in, you have to, to commit to this human made brand. So, I mean, of course, you know, again, I have to go back to this thing that every community has boundaries. There can be no community without boundaries, but it's crucial to understand these boundaries to, to, to make sense of them and to make, to see whether or not we agree with them and and talking again as a Christian here. We want, to, we want to make sure, do we believe these boundaries are justifiable in light of who God is? I mean, when, when I saw this thing about managing well his home, you know, and the fruit of that, requiring a chronically ill and disabled woman to attend church, that is not of God. So I, I you know, I, I did not believe the boundaries were justifiable. So it's important to take seriously the power and potential of religious language to mark insiders and outsiders, because this is really um, a major uh, crunch point where religious language impacts people's lives, where where it positions them. It it either brings them into the community or it expels them. And this has really been one of the main priorities for me in my work. The Bible tells us to defend the cause of the weak and fatherless, to maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. And instead of using religious language to remove violent offenders from sacred communities, which is a good use of boundary violation, you know, that's that's an exercise, to me, an appropriate exercise. 
But often the ones who are displaced are the vulnerable, the marginalized, the ones who actually should be at the center of our concern. So these, you know, I always, I always end up talking about real world circumstances because language, language is not some abstract concept. It is, it is a means by which we, we exercise um, authority. We, we enact judgment, you know, by it, we both bless and curse. Just a really quick follow because I know it's Rachel's turn, but I wanted to say when you wrote about that situation, I think it was in the Aquila report mm-hmm. that I read. It was the first time I was, I think I had ever read anything from you. And I really appreciated um, you writing about it. I very much related to that wife having chronic illness. And there was something that you wrote that was said in there that just brought tears to my eyes because. Um, just, I think of uh, loving our neighbors ourself. And this was the furthest thing from it, um, towards that woman. So, yes. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rachel. No, it was a very good point. Um, you've mentioned a couple of places, the, the various ways that we can, we might see, um, religious language and some of it in expected or unexpected places. I mean, I would love to hear some of the ones your students have come up with. It's, it's a fascinating topic to me, but um, what are some of the places that we might come across religious language? Um, you've mentioned food, but some expected or not expected places. Yeah. So that, that I think is maybe, I don't know. I don't know if it's the more important place to look, but it's the place where we don't really tend to, to notice. It's things that slip in unnoticed that affect us powerfully. So, um, you know, in my book, I talk about religious language in advertising, in politics, in, in sport, in um, healthcare. Um, I, I pick these because maybe people can spot these easily, but also they might not be noticing them right now. Um, and these are these are places where you tend to find religious language because of the characteristics of them. So these tend to be sites of conflict, of crisis, or of high stakes. So there's money to be had, there's fame to be won, there's power to be gained. So you know, you think about religious language is, is among the most powerful ways that we can express ourselves. Of course, if the stakes are high, we're going to call on that power um, in order to, to make sure that the outcome is what we want. So the Olympic Games in Tokyo are coming up. I figure that's a good place to start. Um, the Olympics are a significant place where we find nationalism. Everybody's rooting for their country. We have a lot of pride. Um, there's also a lot of celebration of the human body. You know, we're, we're, it's, it's like, look at what we can do. This is what we can do. There's a lot of elitism. There's competition. And, you know, we're right in the middle of a pandemic. So this is a site that's really ripe for the use of religious language. I'm hoping that some of my students will pick up on this as I teach this, um, this coming fall. Uh, one place this often pops up, I always notice is the selection of who carries the Olympic torch. So there's always discussions of worthiness, who's worthy to bear, to carry the torch, to bear the torch. Um, 
the Olympics is also consistently a site of protest. So people are talking about questions of morality around the Olympics, who benefits, who is harmed by all the architectural, the infrastructural changes that go on, the kind of display to the world of, of this, you know, it's like the city on the hill set alight um, and everyone's watching on the world stage. So you think about what's happening to, to the most vulnerable in those moments. There's a lot of sex trafficking that goes on. So the, this is a site where a lot of religious language goes on, and we need to pay attention to this because it's an opportunity for us to reflect on, but also to not be necessarily swept away by or captivated by um, powerful language that's in use in those moments. Um, politics is another easy one. So again, there's major power to be had in politics, and religious language, of course, facilitates the invocation of the authority to claim that power. And of course, we know Trump was Trump was really good at that. And the United States has a long history of using religious language, despite this claim to a separation of church and state. Um, but, and th this is a point I really want to emphasize, that this is not something unique to the United States. Um, and I think there's a bit of snobbery in some other places. I've noticed this in the United Kingdom around like, oh, you know, Americans and their excesses, they're just so uh, zealous. But religious language is widely used all around the world in politics. So one of the examples I give in my book is in 2018, the leader of Spain's far-right political party, Vox, and his name is Santiago Abascal. He released a campaign that involved a reenactment of Spain's medieval battle to end Muslim occupation. So his key to his platform was this clampdown on fundamentalist Islam and military combat missions against the jihadist threat. So the, the far right is not something uniquely American. It's something that's popping up all, all across the world in the United Kingdom as well. Um, but religious language also you know, appears on the political stages of Taiwan, of Australia, Iran, I've mentioned the United Kingdom, even in so-called secular countries, you know, like the Scandinavian countries, which people think of as, you know, epitome of secular, um, you know, where, where religion doesn't have any part in, in the kind of political sphere. But in fact, you know, scholars have, have, have documented how, in fact, the political realm is manifestly Lutheran and, and it has a history of that. So. You know, I think what we need to take away from this, and I, I just, you know, I, I've not given a ton of examples here, but it, if there is a context where there's something to be gained by wielding powerful language, you will find religious language there. So if, if there is a competition, if there is high stakes, if there is a crisis, there is, there is going to be um, some invocation of, of sacred authority, of sacred ideals, of beliefs, and we need to pay attention to that. You write, the hope is that in understanding more about religious language, in plumbing the depths of ourselves and ideas we encounter, some of us might develop greater empathy, might choose to live in peace with others with whom we disagree um, as far as it is within our power to do so. 
what would you like a non-academic reader to take away from this book? And I really like that quote. Okay. Yeah. Um, thanks. Well, I think, I hope having read um, enough books on language by religious people to, to, to see the problem, I hope people will begin to appreciate the complexity of language a bit more. Um, language is the fascinating and versatile tool. And there are some unfortunate misconceptions about it out there. Um, this idea of taming the tongue or just nice in what you say, make sure what you say is loving. It really doesn't get to, <laughs> it doesn't even scratch the surface with how much our language um, reveals our priorities and how much we need to attend to it. So my, my goal is really to prompt critical self-reflection and humility. Um, our, our sacred notions are, you know, what some people call our cosmology. So that is our, our worldviews are incredibly complex. And for most of us, they are self-contradictory. So we do not live consistently. We, the ways that we talk reveal a, a pretty tangled, mixed up web of intersections between the various people, places, things, ideas we interact with throughout our lives. And, and few of us, I mean, I know myself, I, I, every day I think, Oh, I, you know, <laughs> there's, there's some new, new thing that I see that I've, I've been affected by that I need to, to figure out. Um, so I include this I, I include myself in this, that I hope my book will prompt readers to, re, to begin to reflect and critically reflect on what they hold sacred and what their language says about who they are. So why do you believe what you believe? What is worth defending? What is worth compromising on? What is worth reconsidering? I think these are important questions that I hope all readers will reflect on and more importantly, to act on. I appreciate that a lot because I, I think that is definitely, I'm going to put that quote particularly in the episode notes because I think it's it's worth reflecting on. Um, I know that uh, you you have, I'm not, I'm not sure how you intended maybe the lay person, um, this, this book could obviously be used um, in a class or um, different ways. And now I do think it's one that, a book that makes you think, but have you thought at all about how maybe a lay person would uh, use this book or learn? For, I mean, you you just said uh, a way that that you hope for, but maybe uh, use this book. I mean, I think I could even see like a book group would be a great way. Yeah, um, I I think I don't know. I I. I guess what I, the image that comes to my mind is that um, people will start talking to each other more and want, want to think about, you know, even, yeah. So, I mean, I, there's no doubt I wrote this book for my students. You know, I, I wrote this out of a desire to equip them with a tool. And what students have told me is that, okay, now they go through their lives, you know, they're going to five guys. Or they're going, you're going to the shopping mall, or 
they're watching a political speech and they interact with it differently. And, you know, that, that, that is a wonderful thing to me. I think um, if, if I can encourage people to engage in a different way with the things that we are consuming, the things that we are, maybe that's an inappropriate word, the things that we, we interact with in a daily life that, that, have an effect on us, but that we don't necessarily acknowledge. I would love to see a group get together and think about, okay, what did I interact with this week? And how did that, um, how did that impact how I felt about myself, who I am, my relationship to other people? Did, did it make me feel like I wasn't worthy? Did it make me feel I need to live up to a certain standard? Did it make me, um, feel angry at another person, the, the kind of the effect um, of, of interacting with, with all these kinds of key sites of discourse. So, you know, watching television or, you know, get, getting an email from school. There, there are all kinds of texts that we interact with that, that prompt a reaction in us and also shape our behavior. And I hope that this book will prompt conversations um, where, where people say, wait a minute, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a minute. I'm going to reflect on that. And I'm either going to react to it in a different way or, um, you know, some other, some other response, but that's, that's what I hope. Our, uh, we were in a church several years ago. OPC and we would get together and do a book group, but it was always odd books. It wasn't like the most, the biggest, newest thing out there. And this would have been a really great book for that. I think it, I think it would really um, promote some very interesting discussions. So if anyone's looking for a way to use this book, well, Valerie, so thank you so much uh, for joining us. This was excellent. Uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about. And I'll also link the book in the episode notes. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's such an easy conversation to have with you too. <laughs> we'll see everyone next week.